Some of you have maybe been to historical sites here in our country, and you go to some places in New England. It's exciting to see some, some places of history that date back a, a couple hundred, 200, 300 years. And you stand there and you think, wow, you know, this is uh, where things began. And that seems like so long ago. I remember we had taken to a trip as a family up to Williamsburg, Virginia, and Jamestown Settlement, and being impressed with our young children at what we were seeing there. And then not long after that, the church was gracious enough to send me on a biblical studies trip over to, to Turkey and Greece and Rome to do sort of the journeys of Paul and the seven churches of Asia Minor that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. And as we're standing there, you know, the tour guide is pointing at things that are two or three thousand years old. And you think, wow, okay, this really goes back. This, this is back in the time of, you know, Christ or before him. And, and, of course, they would probably laugh at what we think is a lengthy history, a heritage here in our country it really is a little bit relative when you talk about the enduring of relics and landmarks and things of that nature. What is a little discouraging is when you find out that there are those people that have an agenda, especially over in that part of the world, to, to try to obliterate monuments, relics, sites of, of those natures that seem to corroborate what we read about in the Bible and people of other religious persuasions that have an animosity for Christianity. Uh, they want to try to remove those things to pretend as if they never happened. Well, thank God that the reality that it did happen and that Christianity is, is still the truth that we rest our faith upon today isn't contingent upon the presence or the remaining of relics and archaeological sites. Stuff disappears, stuff gets destroyed, earthquakes happen, all sorts of things like that. And yet man is constantly wondering, what can we do that will endure? There are individuals that are trying to leave a legacy behind. You know, what can I do that after I am deceased, my name might be remembered? Or maybe not concerned so much with having the name and getting that sort of attribution but just really wanting to make a difference for humanity's sake and having very altruistic motives in what they're doing. And yet, for all the people that have done that, people may continue to enjoy and reap the benefits for many years, if not centuries, of what some individual has done, but they lose the connection of, now, who's responsible for this, and who was this person, who was this guy? You know, as we look at this passage of Scripture, we find that there is this spirit of animosity between the religious council and the followers, the believers, the disciples of Jesus Christ. And through what is going on here, with a almost near miss of these disciples about to be executed, if you would, if these men had their way, seems like at the 11th hour, up comes this man, surprisingly, unexpectedly, from the side of the opposition. And he speaks up in a, a way 
that isn't necessarily saying, I agree with these men, but we better take a big, deep breath, fellas, and we better think about what's going on here. And his whole point was, if this is something that is just of man's doing, it's not going to last. It's going to tumble and crumble. But if it's of God, then nothing we can do is going to offset that. And we don't want to be in that position anyway. That's, you don't want to be in the position where you're fighting against God. And so here's this man who we could really say was an unwitting agent of God in this. Be interesting to, to get to heaven and find out, is, is this fellow, did he become a true believer at some point in Jesus Christ? And how does he look back on, on what had, had happened in that way? And yet what we do realize is that we're part of something that's bigger than any of us. The Christian faith is built on Jesus Christ, a solid rock. We, we know that if God is for us, who can be against us? We understand that. And yet sometimes I think that we get a little intimidated. We may even begin to cut back in our obedience we may falter because we do get intimidated by those around us. Yet what we are a part of today in the Christian faith, standing up for Jesus Christ, cannot be demolished. It cannot be demolished. And that's what's going on here. And I think as we look at this text, the question we can ask ourselves is, what can we learn from this passage that will help us to do that which cannot be demolished? What can we learn from this text that will help us to do that which cannot be demolished? Three, three thoughts I would like to develop this morning that I think might be a help to us. And the first one is this. God often provides solutions from surprising sources. You know, it's easy for us to think, you know, God, you could fix this if you would do such and such. We, we sort of, in our minds, just automatically begin to imagine and anticipate and think about, you know, well, this would be a great solution. But do you notice how many times God does bring a solution and it's radically different than anything that we would ever have imagined? It is the message of the gospel that creates such a reaction from people. We, un we need to understand that. And that message of the gospel is tied back to Jesus personally. Jesus reminded his disciples, listen, guys, if you're feeling like people hate you, just keep this in the forefront of your mind, that they're only hating you because they really hate me. They've hated me long before they started showing animosity towards you. We looked at, a couple weeks ago, the passage in 2 Corinthians 2.16, where Paul is explaining, I'm just preaching the gospel, I'm just preaching the gospel, it's the same message in everybody's ears, but not everybody receives it the same way. It's kind of like an aroma. To some people, the aroma is very pleasant. To other people, the aroma of our preaching is very pungent and repulsive. We're not doing anything different. It just has to do with the senses. It has to do with the receptors of the individual. And that is the case for people in whom God is working and tilling their soul to be softened for the gospel. 
and they have a sense of desperate need and they realize life is not working out for them the way they had thought it would and they've looked at a number of different solutions to try to fix their life and it's not working out when the gospel comes to that person it's a wonderful aroma of perfume and they're like that's what i need i need that jesus but for other people that are self-willed proud and arrogant feeling i've got this figured out no one's going to tell me that their way is the, is the supreme way, you know, I'll be okay. Then when you tell them that salvation is through Jesus Christ alone, by faith in him alone plus nothing, there's a repulsion to that. There's a sense in which they are repelled by that. And so as a witness for Jesus Christ, as a missionary, as an ambassador for Christ, we need to understand that because you think, did I do something wrong? Well, sometimes we, we can hone our abilities or our skills. I understand that. But don't be surprised if some people just get out and out upset with you, enraged with you, when you tell them the pure and simple gospel. Because we need to understand that that is the polarizing effect that the Bible tells us is going to happen. Peter's declaration to continue proclaiming Jesus to the masses. And he says, you know, we, we ought to obey God rather than man. When he says that, that outrages these religious leaders. It, it says in, in our verse here where we began reading, verse 33, they were cut to the heart. Literally, they became so enraged when he said that. That was sort of like the straw that broke the camel's back for them. They became so enraged, their next thought was, we need to execute this guy. It's hopeless. We can't, we can't just let him go. He's going to go out and just keep doing this, and it's going to get worse and worse and worse. So the only way we can silence him is to eliminate him. But in God's providence, this did not happen. And God is amazing. If we would just trust God and realize that God will do what we cannot do, God does surprising things for us. In God's providence, a man named Gamaliel was present. He was moved to speak up. And his speaking up totally diffuses the situation. And this is what God can do. God can take the heart of the king and turn it whithersoever he willeth, like rivers of water. So he can do this with a a highly religious man who is of the opposing persuasion. There have been many occasions in history where opposition to Christianity has flared up and, and maybe even burned for a period of time. You know, we, we think about the Nazis and their opposition to the Jewish people, but Christians came under significant persecution during that time as well. There was an out-and-out -out attempt to eliminate God's word. There were piles of Bibles that were burned, and, and this has happened over and over again. We're going to eliminate religion is the idea, and a, a big part of the target was Christianity in most of these cases. And yet, we still have the undiluted, true Christian religion that Jesus Christ himself established. It is surprising because it is to the hurt of the people that oppose that. Matthew Henry, the commentator, said this, The enemies of the gospel 
not only deprive themselves of its comforts, but fill themselves with terrors and are their own tormentors. How true that is. If they would just stop and realize, wait, we need this message. But by trying to silence it and suppress it and eliminate it, they're hurting themselves more than anybody else. If they cannot intimidate, they seek to eliminate. We see it over and over again, somehow. And yet for us as believers that are called to witness, it is easy for us to be influenced, easy for us to begin to adjust our approach, maybe even to silence ourselves. And the word of God is filled with reminders and exhortations. Don't do that. For instance, Jeremiah 1.8. Jeremiah was a man of great passion for the people of God and for what God was doing. And, and, and the people of, of God had been uh, disobedient, fallen into idolatry. God was chastening them with sending them into a captivity. And, and Jeremiah was called to go and speak to the Jewish people and tell them the truth. But it wasn't going to be a popular message. They weren't going to like what they were going to hear. And it could have been very easy for that preacher, for that prophet to say, you know, I, I just think I need to back off a little bit. And what did God tell Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.8? He said, be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. It's hard not to be afraid of people's faces, isn't it? People with their faces scowl and look angry, and you think, are they going to harm me? People may sneer and give that, that grin of mocking, which sometimes can be even more intimidating to us. In other words, I can handle anything except being laughed at and scorned in that way, to be feeling humiliated. And a lot of people have silenced themselves because they're afraid of the face of the world, the face of the culture of public, of society. Saying, you know, I, I don't want to be that person. Well, are we going to be a friend to Christ and have faith and go forward and say, I'm going to obey and realize that he's going to supply the need that I have to give the message pure and simple and it'll have its impact and it will not return void? That's what we need to do. We need to realize God can do surprising things to make sure that we're successful. In Psalm 118, verse 6, David said, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man can do unto me. Oh, how we need to hide these truths and these exhortations deep in our hearts so that when we do feel intimidated by the world, we need to realize, wait, what I am doing, the mission that I'm on for the sake of the gospel and representing my Savior, telling people about Christ, this cannot be demolished. You cannot, uh, there's no undermining of this. Now, you, you might slow down a particular process a little bit, but you're not going to keep the word of God from going forward. So we need to recognize that, that God can use surprising sources. Did he, he not do that many times in the Bible? He does it here. Secondly, God uses unwitting individuals to unravel obstinate obs opposition. Gamaliel, we have no idea whether he realized later in life, you know, wow, what came over me that day? 
Or maybe he thought, I just didn't want to see our group get in trouble somehow. I wonder if he found himself thinking, wow, you know, those thoughts just seemed to come to my mind on the moment. You know, I just felt impelled to compelled to stand up and say something. I didn't even know what I was going to say. It'll be interesting to find out the, you know, the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say someday, with regard to this. In our men's devotional yesterday, Brother Stephen Balkenley was sharing part of a testimony of how er, early on, uh, or years ago, I should say, before he came to know Christ as his Savior, which he's only known the Lord as a Savior for a few years now. But while he was still a lost man, he was encouraging his wife in a particular way. And we were talking about this in our group. Isn't it amazing? You know, How could an unsaved man come out with such wonderful truth that is based in the Bible? And, and we all had to agree as well as himself. You know, That was the Lord using and speaking through here was a man that was not in favor of the gospel at that point in his life, and yet God used him in that way. In fact, the Bible tells us that the world looks at us and says, you know, you Christians, you're foolish. You're foolish. And in this day and age when there's so much tech and hype and, you know, ways to glitz and glamour doing presentations and stuff, you're still doing, what, preaching? <laughs> I mean... Come on now. Preaching is kind of outmoded, isn't it? Well, it's the foolishness of preaching that Christ saves some. 1 Corinthians 1.25 says, The foolishness of God is wiser than men. Now, I understand the irony in what God is saying there, because there's nothing foolish about God, but what he's saying there is people look at it and say, That's foolish. And says, Well, God says, Well, my foolishness is still wiser than the best you have to offer. We all remember Balaam's donkey. You know, here, here is a creature that most of us depict as dumb and stubborn, and, and Balaam just wanted to go forward, and his donkey wouldn't. We understand, as we read the story, that the, God had revealed to that, that steed, if you would, that there was an angel in the way, and finally caused the donkey to speak. You know, and to remind Balaam, you know, you're being headstrong and going away from the path of wisdom that, that God would have you to go. He was being enticed by what the world had to offer, by the enemies of God. They were going to pay him handsomely, and he, he was sort of thinking about going into cahoots with them and all this. And God was reminding him, you need to speak only what I've told you to speak. God could use a donkey. It's not surprising that God can speak through anybody he chooses to. When David's own son leads a rebellion against him, there is a counselor that had been on David's side that goes with Absalom. And the prayer that David prays in 2 Samuel 15, 31, he says, Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And sure enough, as Ahithophel is trying to counsel Absalom against David, Absalom doesn't follow Ahithophel's reasoning in all of this. He turns it in Absalom's mind into foolishness. That's something only God can do. 
And Ahithophel wasn't even trying to serve David, but in the long run, he did. Only God can unravel obstinate opposition like that. So God leads a man named Gamaliel to speak up. He's a doctor of the law, which means that he was a scholar in the Old Testament scriptures. He was highly reputed as a Pharisee. People would go to him saying, can you explain this from the Bible? What did God mean by this? Or, hey, where does it say in the Bible such and such? And he could tell you. He would have been one of those amazing people in that way. We learn later when we come to Acts chapter 22 and verse 3 that Paul was schooled under him. You know, Paul started off as a Pharisee. Well, how did he learn what he learned? He sat under the feet of Gamaliel. According to Jewish tradition, we don't know this to be a fact as far as the Bible is concerned, but Jewish tradition passes down that Gamaliel was the son of Simeon, the one that had held the Christ child in his arms, according to the Jewish encyclopedia. While it's impossible to know if Gamaliel held secret loyalties to Christ all this time, it is obvious one thing is true, and that was he was convinced that Jesus was not the heretic that others thought him to be. There there was something in his mind that said, hmm, we may not want to go overboard in dealing with this whole Jesus movement. Because otherwise, if he had any sort of thoughts that he is... Is the worst thing that could happen to, to biblical leadership. Then he was like, yeah, let's execute him. Something was going on that may have begun even from the time he was a little boy and how he might have been, been influenced by his own father. Gamaliel uses several tactics when he's addressing the council that indicates God's wise ways are coming out of his mouth as an unwitting agent. And it's kind of like Peter's confession when Jesus says, who do people say I am? And and Peter's the one that comes out and says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter, but flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my father did. You see, again, Peter was able to say something that didn't come in, you know, from his own in, internal inspiration, God somehow endued him with that ability to say that. And that seems to be what's happening here perhaps with Gamaliel. So what tactics can be observed in what Gamaliel does here? Tactic number one is what I call the tactic of remove. First thing we're told is that he, before he begins his speech, he says, let's start by asking these men to step outside. And and that needs to be realized that that was a very wise move on his part. I don't believe it was done because he wanted to spare these men from hearing what he had to say or that he was even trying to keep secret from them what he was going to say. You know, I don't want them thinking I'm some sort of nice guy or I'm on their side. This is speculation, but again, the whole purpose of why he's speaking at this point is he's trying to diffuse a very hot and hostile situation. And i got to believe that having those men, those Christian apostles standing there and the council still visually seeing them would still continue to froth the emotions inside of each member of that council. So, you know, let's just, let's just get them out of here, you know, so that they can just focus on what I have to say. That was very shrewd. That was very wise on his part. How did he come up with that? No doubt God somehow instilled that in him. 
you know, we can learn from that. There are certain things that we need to often remove that are unnecessary uh, interactions that, that bring a, a hostility about from people. We want to make sure as we are reasoning with people from the scriptures that if there is an offense, it's purely from the gospel. It's purely from the word of God and not from some external force. And so what might need to be removed? What might be an encumbrance on our being able to talk to people? Tactic number two we see is what I call the tactic of review. Gamaliel emphasizes that while the crowd was asserting that they are motivated to doing the work of God, they may let their extreme emotions cloud their judgment. In other words, you know, we are on Jehovah's side, the council would say. We're the ones that are holding to the scriptures. These guys that are following Peter, these Christians, they're the ones that are departing from the historical traditional Judaism. And so there can be a huge amount of emotion with that. Now, why would they be concerned about that? Well, if you go backwards in time, you would be very right to hold to the traditions that they were holding to because they were trying to honor God and God had set forth, follow the law and, and follow these sacrifices and all this. And, you know, Christ hadn't shown up yet. The Lamb of God hadn't been revealed yet. So you shouldn't follow just anybody that shows up. And in fact, they had rejected many other counterfeit messiahs that had come along. And so, but if you're not careful, you can get caught up on focusing on this particular situation as they were. They were focused on the Jesus movement and these people that were part of it. And all they could think of is, we got to do whatever we can to abolish this. Their emotions were very strong. Gamaliel, I think, steps back and says, well, well, let's think about this for a minute. You know, we want to make sure we're honoring God. We want to keep him in mind here. And we don't want to get caught up in some secondary goal that we think is part of that, but we forget about that, and therefore we abuse and we go against the primary goal of honoring God. You know, there's an important lesson for us in all that, too. We, we need to regularly be reviewing, okay, what are the non-negotiables about following Jesus Christ? There are good traditions, things that we put in place and have come down for, through time for us. And there's good reasons why we hold to those things, landmarks. But we need to constantly say, but I should never hold to these secondary objectives if it means I have to sacrifice the goal of bringing glory to God, if it means I have to sacrifice lifting up Jesus Christ properly. And so Gamaliel does that. We need to be cautious that we don't fall into that same trap. Tactic number three is what I call resemble. What he does is he gives two analogies, two illustrations that resemble the situation they're in right now. He says, think about this, guys. You remember these two individuals, one was named Thutis and the other was Judas. And we cannot identify these, these um, individuals with great certainty, although certain Jewish historians like Josephus have speculated a little bit about these men. 
we don't know for sure, but it's not really that critical that we identify all the particulars. God's given us the basics of what we need to know about these men for the purpose of why we need to know about them. It is more likely that both of these men had led uprisings in recent time. And the details were very fresh in the memories of the council. So that when Gamaliel mentions them, all of them say, oh yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And the point was that in both cases, the individuals perished without the intervention of those who opposed them. In other words, we're left, led to believe that the council didn't like what they were about either. They wouldn't have agreed with these men. But they didn't raise their hand personally against them. A little time went by, and it kind of diffused itself. Somehow these men ceased to be, and the followers scattered. And so with that, he says, now remember how this has happened in the past. And this is very similar to that. If this be of God. Well, you know, that's a very important word there, if. That's his thinking. But you know what? We could say, since it is of God. And we know that what this is about and what we're about today is of God. We don't say if it's of God. We say since it's of God. We're motivated to be faithful. We're motivated to move forward. Just like Peter and the apostles were in their day. They said, since this is true, we're doing what is, is going on here. But the, the fact that he left, well, there's a possibility. And it will take care of itself. God's big enough to deal with these people. So this brings us to the fourth tactic of Gamaliel. And that is his recommendation. What did he recommend? In the end, Gamaliel exhorts the crowd to leave these men alone and let God deal with them in a divine, supernatural way that they would not feel like that they had to put their hands on the situation. And this is not an endorsement of the apostles. This was not, not Gamaliel saying, I sort of believe what they're saying. Or to suggest that if we do this and let them go, and they continue doing what they're doing, we're not putting our stamp of approval on it. But they could not know with certainty, and this is Gamaliel's point, we can't know for sure. There is some, an element of reasonable doubt that they might be of God in what they're doing. So let's tread carefully here. Some things are better left for God to sort out, aren't they? I've learned that in the ministry. Some things I, I know with clarity that I have scriptural back basis for, foundation for. There's enough details and facts about the current situation to say, well, this is what God's word said, and this is clearly what's going on here, and so this is what needs to happen. But you know, there are many times in the Christian life, whether it be a pastor or whether it be a Christian who's just simply trying to be an encouragement to another person in their life, another believer, and you're thinking, you know, they seem to have answers for everything I say. Something doesn't seem to be right here about this. But every time I approach them and I question them, they come back with this. And all my alarms are saying, something's off here. This isn't pleasing to God. And I've often said, Lord, you know I'm not omniscient. 
You didn't give me that ability to know what's going on. I only look on the outward appearance. You're the one that looks on the heart. And so, Lord, I can only go as far as you've given me ability and insight to go. And I would have to cross a line, I believe, where I am imposing myself to say, oh, I know what your motives are. And now I'm not judging righteous judgments. And the Bible warns us about doing that. And there's nothing wrong with us saying, God, if you want me to take another step with the involvement of this person, then you show me what I'm supposed to do. But at this point, I realize I have to turn them over to you. And in fact, he teaches that in the book of Corinthians for the church. There comes a point where he says, you know, you just turn them over to the buffeting of Satan. You don't have to daily work them over. You don't have to call them on the phone. You don't have to encounter them every day and just say, you know, say, you know what? We've gone as far as we can. God knows the truth and so do you. And so Gamaliel gives great wisdom here. Wisdom that as wise as he was, we must realize God was speaking and working to him to say exactly what he said or the gist of what he said for this particular situation. It really isn't praise to Gamaliel, it's praise to God behind invisibly working Gamaliel. So what's the third lesson we can learn? And that is that God uses hardship to inspire greater service. Gamaliel's counsel only softened the reaction of the religious leaders. They didn't send these men out with new clothes on. They didn't feed them, you know, a grand meal. In fact, they said, well, if they're leaving, we're going to get our licks in one more time. And so they beat them, which means they were pretty severe. This was probably whips with the leather straps that had the embedded pieces of glass and metal and so forth like that. May have been the 39 lashes, sparing 40 lashes, sparing one, the 39 lashes. They beat them, according to verse 40. They ordered them to stop preaching about Jesus. We're telling you, don't go out and do that again. But they were free to continue their mission for the Lord. They were let loose. And it was accompanied with tribulation. It wasn't easy. And folks, doing what Christ leads us to do isn't always comfortable. It often comes with resistance. It often comes with pain. It often has a cost. It often requires sacrifice on our part. And perhaps they were remembering the words of Christ from the Sermon on the Mount when in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, he said, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. And then he goes on in verse 12 to say, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So Peter and the apostles could walk away and say, you know what, we've, we've read about what they did to Jeremiah. You know, how they put him down in that pit. We, we've read about how they, they treated Ezekiel. We've read about, you know, some of these others that, you know, were not elevated, not esteemed. And hey, we're in pretty good company. I'll take that as a badge of honor. I'm glad to be part of that club. And that's what we need to ask ourselves, you know, what group do we want to associate with? When we 
went through the Bible Museum and I was brought to remembrance again the many of individuals during the translating of the Word of God from the Latin Vulgate and from the Greek and the Hebrew into the English language. There were many, many individuals that were met with opposition to the point that they were executed and sometimes in very gratuitous ways. Burnings at the stake, for instance. And why did they do that? Because they were on mission for the Lord. They ought to obey God rather than man. They praised God in the flames. And so these people that we're reading about here, Peter and the apostles, they welcomed their freedom, but they wore their persecution as a badge of honor. That's what verse 41 tells us. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Whose name? Jesus' name. That's why they're doing this to us. Because we're all about Jesus. This event served more to motivate them in their mission than it did to suppress them. I mean, it really fired them up. You would think that it would have silenced them, muffled them, slowed them down a little bit. No. This is exactly what Jesus told us to expect. we got to get even busier. We were only preaching in Solomon's porch when people would come up to us. But now we need to go house to house according to verse 42. We, we, the days are short. We need to redeem the time. We don't need to worry about what people are going to do to us. History tells us that there may have been a number of people in Nero's inside circle. And of course, Nero was an infamous emperor who hated the Christians. Remember, he, he burned Rome but blamed the Christians for it. He was responsible for a lot of the Christians in the Colosseum be torn by the lions and the wild beast. And yet, curiously, a number of the men in Nero's inside circle were related to characters that are mentioned in the New Testament, history tells us. Seneca was Nero's tutor, advisor, speechwriter. Seneca was the younger brother of Gallio, who found Paul, quote, not guilty of wrong and wicked lewdness. There was a connection there. Pallas, one of the rulers, the real rulers of the empire, was brother of Felix, the governor of Judea, before whom Paul pled his case. Maybe it influenced back. Vitellius, the senator who arranged with the Senate to legalize the marriage between uh, Agrippa and Claudius, was a former governor of Syria. Indeed, he dismissed Pontius Pilate, and so there would have been a connection there. Nothing by accident, all by the providence of God. It makes a step and say, God, you're amazing. And so it ought to instill a courage in us, a desire to be faithful to the Lord. In our own country, I'm reminded of those that even with the quote-unquote religious freedom that we started with, it didn't always have religious freedom in the colonies before the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights came about. And so in the early colonies in Massachusetts, for instance, in the year 1651, there was a pastor by the name of Obadiah Holmes. He decided to hold a prayer meeting in his home, which at the time was illegal according to town ordinance. He was ordered to be whipped by Governor Endicott for holding a prayer meeting. It was so severe 
that whipping that he received that for days he could lie only by resting on the tips of his elbows and his knees. And yet when the lashes had fallen upon him, he looked at his tormentors and through blood-stained lips cried, Gentlemen, you have whipped me with roses. Only the heart of a man that is deeply in love with Jesus Christ and committed to doing what he has led him to do can respond in such a way. But Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What Jesus is doing in the book of Acts and is still doing today cannot be demolished. And the joy of it is, friend, you and I are part of it to this very day. And so let's take courage and let's be faithful to tell those that need to hear about our wonderful Jesus. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminders to us of how you can work, how you can take even someone in the opposing party and you can virtually turn them into a puppet, speaking and bringing about that which you will. That their lips would speak that which brings about the results that you deem necessary in your sovereignty. Lord, help us today to, to stand in a sense of awe at how amazing and how powerful you are. But Lord, may it rekindle our faithfulness for you and for the cause that you've called us to, to serve you as a witness. Lord, help us not to fear the faces of those that oppose you, but help us to serve faithfully. And when we are in tribulation, and when we are jeered at, when we might face injury, help us to be as these men, to rejoice that we are counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.